Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1960 film La Ventura. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Uh, Barrett, I thought just by sheer numbers, we were done with movies where I had to add them to the list of, if you told me you thought this was the greatest movie of all time, I'd have to be like, I get it. But this one fits that. I, this one fits into that list for me. And that list is about 30 movies long now, but it's like, I, I would buy it. If somebody said, this is, this is the key text for them. Um, what is your history with this movie? Yeah, I saw it. Um, I know that I saw it on the, uh, in a Criterion edition. I think it was before the channel came along. I saw it in a Criterion disc because I, because I remember listening to the commentary as well. When I first saw it, um, I think it might've been back when I was teaching and, um, I may have thought about using the film in the class, but, you know, I was aware of Antonioni. I guess another way I'll answer your question, um, Sam, is what's my history with Antonioni? Let's um, do that, yeah, when, yeah. Yeah, back when I was in high school, um, we had a really great arts theater in downtown New Haven, and my friends and I went there a lot. Um, and they had, a, they had a run of a lot of Italian films, some of them contemporary, like Lena Mueller and Seven Beauties and, and films like that. But I remember they showed The Red Desert, which was the fourth film that Antonio made with Monica Vitti after the kind of informal trilogy that La Ventura kicks off. I remember being completely baffled and completely bored. It's like, I have no idea what's going on. I don't understand this movie at all. Um, and several years later, probably when I was, when I, when I was teaching, I, I watched um, Blow Up. Um, which is a really fascinating film. And I, that that resonated for me a lot more. So I decided I needed to go back and kind of bone up on my Antonioni. So I've done La Ventura. Haven't gotten to the other two films in the trilogy yet, but that's that's my wandering history with him. So by the time you got to La Ventura, you were ready for it in terms of yeah yeah by the time i got to la ventura i i had seen a lot more foreign film and i kind of i kind of understood the idea that um what starts to happen with films in the 1960s is various kinds of film grammar kind of emerge and of course in many ways what antonioni was doing in la ventura has been kind of absorbed by other filmmakers and so i think in that respect when you come to Antonioni, having seen some of the films that he's influenced, it makes it a little bit easier to get what's going on. Yeah, I will say my history, I mean, this is the first time I watched this movie was this week, but my initial history with being aware of this film goes back to uh, earlier in this podcast, because when I first got the Criterion channel, they have these little features that are like almost like film school features where they're like, we're going to take a movie and we're going to show you stuff. And one of the, I started watching those in order and I haven't watched a lot of them, but one of the first ones was on this movie. And I, I remember telling you about it and being like, the feature was great. It was so interesting how it, you know, it was, it's about restraint in this movie mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the like kind of blocking and framing. And I remember your, this was early on in the podcast. Your response to me was, Oh, I don't know if you would like that movie. Um, and I and I get it because it's like maybe at that time I would have been like, what is this? But like it, this hit at the right time now where I was like, oh, I totally I'm on board. I'm on board with this movie. Um, this has a really interesting initial reception because this premieres at Cannes and uh, it's at its premiere. Uh, it's described as a mix of laughter and booze uh, as sort of nothing seems to be happening in scenes. 
Um, but by the end of the, fe- it's rescreened, and by the end of the festival, it wins the jury prize. So it's it's nominated for the Palm d'Or, wins the jury prize, uh, has really pretty good international box office success, critical success, and just two years later, it is number two on the second Sight and Sound list. So this movie launches right away into being a canonical movie for for film critics, and it's remained on the Sight and Sound list. Um, since then and it's interesting because i so i looked at that 1962 list because i was curious like is anything else that contemporary on the 1962 list the next closest is a film we watched ugetsu which is nine years old at that time and the average age of the movies on the 62 list is 22 years old so this as a two-year-old movie is uh being number two on that list is quite remarkable how quickly this movie becomes canonical and it's interesting to note, 1960, we, of course, have to say that that's the year of Breathless. And so this is a movie that comes along at the time of the new wave with a very, I mean, almost a, almost a polar opposite style to what's going on with Gadar. Um, and also at Cannes, this is the year that um, Fellini's La Dolce Vita wins the Palme d'Or. And Fellini's are also a very different kind of director from Antonioni and Gadar. So, I mean, in a way, I mean, we've talked about this before, Sam, but 1960 kind of captures um, when, when the film world just kind of explodes and starts going in all these different directions. It's very exciting. Yeah, it's interesting because the next thing on my list was 1960 in film that that, you know, and I, I had those movies. If you look at what's uh, things that are that are sort of popping in America, you um, the biggest movie of 1960 commercially is uh sort of stanley kubrick's spartacus is the big so so kubrick kind of has a movie that's sort of a kubrick movie sort of not the best picture is uh another video store favorite billy wilder's the apartment which is a great movie so i mean wilder's obviously a lot older um and then that's also alfred hitchcock's psycho is 1960 as well so even in america you're getting some some really fantastic movies but that seems like this like focal point uh for for thinking about uh for thinking about filmmakers um hitchcock is another director very different from antonioni but i would also connect the both i would connect psycho with this film as films which the apparent main character as has happened in the vanishing is gone within the first 20 minutes of 25 minutes of the film and also i would connect it to a certain degree with vertigo just in terms of kind of that that search for uh, for a a lost love all over question vertigo it keeps going and here it disappears right right um it, it's interesting because i think what it shares with psycho different than the vanishing and, and this was part of my experience watching this is i didn't know what this movie was about so i actually like the first time i watched psycho assumed the character i'm being told is the main character well i would assume that's the main character and when they disappear it is quite shocking to me like i just i wasn't i wasn't i mean in psycho it's it's very shocking mm-hmm. in this i sort of it, it's the 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 slow like um dissolving of the importance of anna is so interesting yes. in this yeah. movie but i definitely did think about that that oh interesting in the same year two very different filmmakers are are uh playing that making that move in a movie mm-hmm. um the, uh, one of the questions that I want to think of, I don't want to answer right now, but I think our the rest of our episode will hopefully answer this, uh, is why does this movie become so important so quickly? Uh, and I, hopefully in talking about the, this film, we'll, 
we'll we'll get to that. But do you have any initial thoughts on like why this becomes something that? Well, I mean, I, I guess I guess my initial thought on this is, is maybe something of a of a cliche about the '60s, but um, it seems as though you know the, the '60s is a time when existentialism as a philosophy was still still had an, an impact on people. It, it was a time when people were really trying to kind of figure out, well, what is this modernity that we that we're now located in, and you know, the film has a lot of images of the modern versus the traditional. And I, and, I, and I think it's, you know, through the architectural shots and just the emphasis on landscape over character, which we'll talk a little bit about as well. But I, I think it, I think it captures a mood. You know, we're only five or six years away from the Time magazine uh, famous cover article is God Dead. Um, and Antonioni is a notoriously non-religious, not anti-religious, it was kind of a non-religious filmmaker. So in a way, he kind of, he kind of captures a mood of, and another cliche word I'll use, a, a mood of alienation, a, a, a mood of a kind of dissatisfaction with modern life, at, despite everything that it that you have. So Sandro, for example, you know, towards the end of the film, talks about the fact that he thought maybe he'd be a starving artist living in a rented house. Instead, he has these two very, he obviously has a very um, affluent lifestyle. And in a sense, in that respect, the film does kind of pair well with La Dolce Vita because it's about saying, well, okay, so we're prosperous. So we make a lot of money. Uh, so what? I think the film kind of captures that mood. Mm -hmm. uh do you have a, you you mentioned how different this is than than Godard's breathless i was looking online and i couldn't find by the way i didn't look too deeply like do you have a sense of like what Godard thought about a movie like this that's a fascinating question and i and i have absolutely no idea um i would tend to okay so there's two Godards, right i mean there's the Godard who was the himself a film critic and there was the Godard who was the filmmaker um and Part of me wants to say this is so different from the films that Godard made. How could he possibly appreciate it? But the other part of me says, yeah, but Godard liked lots of Godard liked what was experimental. Mm -hmm. And so I like to think that Godard had a certain respect for this film, but I haven't looked to see exactly if we have a record of Godard's response. I mean, because some of the some of the formal things in here, I think, like like made me think of things that excite me about Godard movies. I mean, this is a uh, this is a movie that is quite literally a love letter to the back of people's heads. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. I mean, yes. to the point where the ending scene is somebody caressing the back of somebody's head. Yes. Um, and and it, I mean, it made me think of two years later when Godard does uh, My Life to Live. Like we, you have that fantastic opening scene where you're not where you don't see their faces. And there's moments in this where I was like, oh, that I, I was excited about that same thing. The way I mean, it's different, but. But um, I like. I wonder if some of the formal ex, uh, experimentation in here, um, there's, mm -hmm. you know, would would be the kind of thing that would excite him. Can we talk a little bit about Antonioni? Um, just to to get into this. Um, so kind of who was he by 1960? This is his sixth film, but this is kind of his big breakthrough film. Yeah, exactly. He 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 kind of got his start in, um, and he did some documentary filmmaking. He was kind of interested in neorealism. Um, one of his films in the late fifties is kind of noirish. So yeah, he he was playing around with different genres in a sense, and um, hadn't really done anything that excited people. You know, he was kind of below the, a little bit below the radar. He was not, for example, of the stature of Fellini in the fifties. So in a sense, this film 
it's almost like he he tried out various options and i don't know exactly how he how he landed on this but this is definitely the the breakthrough where he finds a kind of you know new film grammar that nobody else at, at the time was exploring yeah as i was reading about his childhood there was in his young life there was one fact that didn't appear that kind of blew me away so as a child he was really into art and drawing and architecture, which seems very clear in this movie. He's interested in architecture, but he does not appear to have a photography background, even Mm. though like I was expecting this is, he's going to have a little bit of a Kubrick in him of like, he was a still photographer because there are so many moments in this film where I just wanted to pause it and be like, can I just get a poster of this shot? This is the most beautiful thing I've seen or most interesting shot I've seen. Um, So I was a little surprised that there wasn't uh, there wasn't a, at least laid out in anything I read about him, you know, him starting as a photographer. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um. So like with a lot of movies uh, that we've talked about, I, I sort of struggle with like, okay, do I want to talk about this formally or narratively? Um. And I think this does such a good job of blending those two in that the, I think the formal elements, sometimes with Godard, the formal elements stick out mm-hmm. Um. as like, oh, he's, I'm interested in what he's doing here. And then I also have to think about what's happening. In this move, in this film, I feel like it's like they blend so much more. Where I think the the formal elements are fitting in a lot to what he's uh, what he's sort of doing narratively. I will say the first I watched this movie twice this week. The first time I watched it, it was some of those formal things. Some of the I mean, this movie has great, great deep focus uh, photography. It has great uh, blocking and. Um, and sh- uh, kind of just shot compositions. I was so excited about that stuff and a little baffled by the narrative. And then I watch it the second time. And it's not that those formal things went away, but I became so much more interested in the narrative um, the second time I watched it. So this was, this was actually, and I bet if I watched it a third time, it would be an even different, ex- like, I think this is one I could go back to and get more and more out of. And, and actually to be, to be frank, Sam, that actually surprised me as well. You know, I remember, I remember uh, it's been several years since I watched it and I remember thinking, yeah, it, it's kind of long and I liked it, but it's, I, I liked it in kind of a formal sense because not a lot happens, but watching it this time, I felt like two and a half hours was the right length. And, and I, I, I felt, and I read a critic who said this, that, you know, the movie actually kind of moves along, even, even though it's, it's languid in some respects and you get a lot of those long static shots. I never feel like it's it, that it takes too long at any particular point. So I think you're right. I think it is fascinating in that you can be interested in it both formally. And there are shots where you want to say, wow, I just want to keep looking at that. Uh, But you're also, there is a narrative that also pulls you in in part because of um, in part because of the mystery of the characters. You know, you know, I, I think about if we think about the vanishing from last week, you know, you're you're driven by your interest in these two very different characters whose motivation is pretty clear. These characters, you're interested in them, but you're never quite sure what they're up to. You're never quite sure what they're thinking. And the suggestion with Antonioni is sometimes they're not sure themselves what's going on. So there's a there's a there's a there's a forward in momentum, but it's it's fueled by very different kinds of um, interests. Well, and, and okay, let's go let's go to a a theme that's run through this this podcast from one of our early episodes, which is uh, when movies are telling me people are in love. Do I think they're in love? This movie's great because it's like I don't know if they know. Like like uh, you know, and sometimes that 
there's sometimes that's the kind of thing that bothers me where it's like it's almost like people are playing playing hamlet a little too bit a little bit too much with love of like am i in love am I? but like this is like i i don't know i don't know if they know that seems to be the whole point um and and i just so i actually thought that stuff that sometimes bothers me was really effective um effective in this movie yeah that's a really good point sam they they are mysterious and this is what I, this is this is where the formal and the thematic reinforce each other right they are mysterious to us because they are mysterious to themselves mm-hmm. so so that key scene um and you alluded to david boardwell's um little film classes they they, they are absolutely brilliant um so that great scene that you also alluded to where the two women have their back to the camera very Godardian moment, although Antonioni would not have seen Godard. I mean, Godard hadn't done that at this point, so Antonioni does it first. And and, and what's wonderful about that scene is the is, is you first think to yourself, okay, well they've got the back, he's, they've got their back to the camera because they're undressing, and it's 1960, and you know you got to avoid frontal nudity. But no, they have their back to the camera because Gloria is Claudia rather is trying to find out why Anna did what she did with the shark story. So in a normal Hollywood film, as David Boardwell points out, you'd get shot, you'd get a shot and a reaction shot, shot counter shot. You'd see their faces as they as they ask each other, but instead you don't you don't see their faces and they don't see their each other's faces. Mm-hmm. And so you get no you get no nonverbal clues as to what Anna was thinking. And it's because Anna maybe she doesn't know what she's thinking right she's she's this person she's feeling kind of unmoored from her own life and so it, it also captures kind of the contingency of human behavior i don't know i'm gonna i'm gonna say there's a shark i don't know why i said it i just said it and i it got a reaction and and i don't know why i did that i mean i think that's what antonioni captures so beautifully is not not just the mystery of human behavior but the mystery of the mystery of human behavior um mm-hmm. and that's and that's one reason why I think the film lasts for 60, more than 60 years, because those are still issues about being human beings that we wrestle with. Absolutely. So let's jump into this movie. So I'm, I'm big on opening. So I'm thinking about the opening of this movie and you have Anna talking with her father and you get this. I noticed this the second time around as they're talking, you get this shot where on the left, right side of the screen is the wall of the villa. And they're talking about how there's going to be how like the the land around this that used to be trees is now going to be, um, you know, they're going to build stuff there. And in the background, you see the dome of St. Peter's Basilica. You see Michelangelo's dome there. (laughs) And it and I I realized the second time I watched it, that is an exact mirror of the last shot of the film where you have the the wall of the I think it's the wall of the hotel and you have Mount Etna in the background. Yeah. And, And it's like, oh really interesting mirroring there um uh so i mean it's it's both again a, a, a sort of beautiful version of like keeping everything in crisp focus and um and having i mean this is shot on such interesting locations um uh but so 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 you get this mirroring as they're sort of talking about um you know anna going and and you know and the father's like well he's not going to marry you. And she says, well, I'm the one who's, who, who doesn't seem to want to marry him. Right. So we're, we're getting some of this and we're getting this setup that Anna is our central care. Everything about this is telling us that's our central character. Now, what I love about this scene is um, we also get introduced to an idea, which is going to run throughout this movie, which is 
as you watch this scene, you realize there is somebody in the background of this scene who slowly emerges as the father walks away, and that is Claudia. Right, mm-hmm. Claudia is there waiting, uh, waiting at the car, and she slowly kind of emerges from the scene, from the background of the scene, and then we go to the 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 next setup, which is an even better uh, visual depiction of this. When when Anna goes up to meet Sandro, and you have the stunning shot of them in the apartment, and the window is open, and you see Claudia in the in the like the square down below, and it's. I mean, it, it it actually does remind me of like the Colorado scene in Citizen Kane, where it's like you're seeing her there as clear as day. You're seeing that it's and it's such a setup of this is the character in the background. This is and but and you know and maybe sometimes you're thinking, is this a character that is like in the heads of any of these people? Um, but then, but this movie is going to be about taking that background character and having her slowly emerge. So when you get to the very last scene, it sort of feels like she's what the movie was about. Yeah, and it, and it and it tells you that this is going to be a, a triangle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also want to back up just a minute, though, Sam, in terms of the opening of the movie, and point out um, that the the music over the opening credits is a really interesting combination of kind of a traditional uh, string Sicilian song, and then you've got this kind of modern beat. And I, I just I, I thought it was really interesting. It was I thought the opening music was almost Hitchcockian. Mm-hmm. In, 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 or, or remind me, me a little bit of Jaws. Uh, it had kind of that, and, it, and it's almost like it's telling you, it's almost a misdirection. It's, it's, it's almost like you're about to see a thriller is, is, is the way that opening music works. But it's also got that traditional versus versus very modern kind of counterpoint. Yeah, I think he he told the composer that he, what he wanted was Hellenic jazz. <laughs> like, like do a jazz song, but use like traditional like greek instruments and, and old yes, greek yes. instruments um which speaks to the 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 classic and the modern as well you know yeah. and sort of a blending of those things um so i think that claudia is such an interesting character because she is i mean as we said she emerges from the background she's initially anna's friend who just sort of seems to be along for the ride it's so interesting when they get to the boat you realize everybody is paired Mm-hmm. off with somebody yep. and then and then claudia's there and it's like and i just remember thinking i kept looking around for like well who did they connect with claudia and you realize she doesn't have somebody there and she really is um this this sort of um third wheel almost not not in a negative way but it's like she doesn't fit into the this group of people and you also realize as the story goes on that she is an outsider to this group. I mean, there's a moment where when Anna is thinking about, you know, um, uh, not going on the, not going on the trip or breaking up with, with Sandra when they're, you know, before she goes to his apartment, Claudia's response is, Oh, I guess there's no cruise then because she is a visitor into this world. We also learn that she's not from as wealthy a background as Anna or Sandra or any of these people, um, so there is this sense of like, this is, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, especially when you were a kid of like, if you have a friend who is just from a wealthier family than you were, and, and there is this sense that you spend time with that family and you, there is kind of this like imposter feeling you have at first, and then you start to get comfortable with it. And then you start to question, should I be comfortable with this? Should I be comfortable with these values as opposed to the values of my home? And it's like this, none of this stuff is expressed, but it's all there. 
Um, and, and if you pay attention in this movie, um, something I would compare it to, and this is probably too big of a jump, um, but it's interesting because this author comes up in the movie, is, is, is it reminds me a little of like Nick Carraway in The Great Gatsby, mm-hmm. where he's not from the same class as Tom and Gatsby and these people, but he's sort of visiting and he gets caught up in it. And he even, you know, like, is dating Jordan for a while. And there's this sense of like, is he just going to become part of this? But he also has a kind of observer's distance as well. Um, so like, like that was what I thought about when I was thinking about this character. That's a really interesting observation, Sam, because, you know, um, Anna doesn't have a uh, great Gatsby in her luggage, but she does have tender, the, tender as the night. Uh, and that's, that's Fitzgerald's semi-autobiographical novel that examines the dissolution of a marriage. And, you know, the other obvious thing to say about this film, if you want to think about the kind of thematic structuring, is there is not a happy couple in mm. this film. Every couple is either bored with or irritated by each other, and almost every one of those couples has, it has one member of that couple that is um it being unfaithful in some way or another or, or thinking about being un- un- unfaithful um so whether it's patricia and her husband they just sort of seem kind of bored with each other but she's even bored with the guy on the boat or carado and julia or the pharmacist and and his his wife um and, and then on the train you get the guy kind of propositioning the woman i mean so claudia is, is sur- she's surrounded by all these really kind of unhappy couples which makes the which in a conventional film you might say oh well what we're going to find out is 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 sandro and and claudia will be different well that's not entirely clear that it's it's a world in which it may not be possible for men and women to be content with one another or for relationships to be genuine i think that's one of the things that antonio might be suggesting so then we get to we get from the boat to the island um itself, which is maybe one of the most amazing settings I've ever seen. I, I love pieces of nature where you look at them and think, I can't believe this exists. And the fact that they went out there and apparently it was a pretty rough shooting. Like they would get stranded out on that island for days because the finances of the movie fell apart or boats couldn't get there. So they were camping out on this they like 23 people on the the cast and crew and they were camping out on this island and sounded pretty miserable Um, one one article i read said that it actually made um coppola's uh problems filming apocalypse now look like a walk in the park and evidently this was antonioni's history he had experienced a lot of these sorts of production problems and was hoping that this would be the one film where things would go smoothly but it was like the production company went bankrupt a week into the filming and yeah so they were literally on this island which was rat infested um without enough food and water and so there it was supposed to be i think it was supposed to be like an eight day shoot on the island and it turned into four months it was just awful yeah yeah now this is where i I think we get some of the really great deep focused framing because you get all these shots where a shot may start on a person in close up and but they're a little off center and you realize behind them you're seeing another character who's doing something else or they'll move out of frame and you realize there's other characters there or you'll start with a, lo- a really long shot and then a character will enter frame close up and you know, so we're getting all these kind of layerings but what I love about it is um after Anna's disappearance on the uh, on the um on the island you just get this sense of like these people kind of wandering around the rocks like they they have this purpose of they're like looking for anna but 
you watch each of them slowly get distracted from that which you realize later is like oh that's the theme of the movie is eventually everyone gets distracted to the point where by the end Anna doesn't really it doesn't even matter to you as a viewer like I I'm not by the time I get to the end of the movie the questions that I have are not what happened to Anna it's a lot of other questions I have about the people I've been spending time with um but uh so so like you see um you see Julia is distracted by Corrado's sort of disinterest towards her so she's you know that's what she ends up talking with Claudio about Corrado is distracted by the ancient pottery there's a point where they're supposed to be looking for Anna and he's holding up like part of a vase and looking at it and you're like you are a person is potentially dead who you like within the within the hour and you're already like huh this is you know um you have uh, Patrizia and Romando who are uh, Patrizia is disinterested in Romando and Romando is sort of obsessed with um, with her and distracted by her disinterest. Um, and then you get this great shot where they find that bigger vase. It's one, one of the things that I, I just blew me away. And when Romando drops it, mm-hmm. It sort of vanishes, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's like it's like it falls into the and, and it's it's just it was just so interesting to think about because part of me is like, well, how could Anna just disappear? And then you're like, well, this thing just dis like literally disappeared on camera. It was it's 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 kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I think that you know this this idea of that that artifact disappearing, which is you know that that's an artifact of the past, which is which is ancient by human standards, but by the standards of the islands, these frozen volcanoes, it's it's actually a, a relatively young artifact. So you get again that kind of modern and ancient ancient contrast. But yeah, this whole whole idea that you can vanish or disappear and people can just kind of forget about you. Um and it's like how you know, we all we all we all hope that we kind of leave a mark in the world, and and Anna seems to embody the idea that well, you know, when you're when you're dead, you're just eventually kind of forgotten, and it's just that what Antonioni has done is he's kind of um, he's ramped up the, the time frame on that, so it happens much more quickly. And of course, the other thing that happens, especially with with Claudia, is um, it by the end by midway through the film, it's no longer in her interest to find Anna. Mm-hmm. In fact, in, in fact, she. She says it, at one point, "I'm afraid she might be alive," um, and it doesn't take you, take her long to get to that point. At one at, at one point, you kind of have a sense of how much time has gone by, and I think they refer to like three or four days, something like that. Yeah. That's that's how quickly. I mean, when, when you think about you think about you know, if my best friend or a good friend died tomorrow, and in three days I was capable of saying or disappeared, and in three days I was capable of saying, "Gee, I'm afraid he, he or she might be alive." Um, yeah. That would be horrible. And yet yeah. in this film, in this film, we accept this as her sentiment. We accept the fact that she says that. And I don't recoil from her. I'm like, oh, I can see why she would say that. Well, and I think it's really important that she that she doesn't explicitly die, she disappears, because that implies she's she it actually seems more likely she's out there somewhere because if she had drowned, she would have presumably been washed up to the shore like bodies float right like so it's so it's sort of like she is out there probably um but the fact that they just sort of drop it it's interesting you were talking about like how quickly we move on we forget things lose their meaning um and i'm realizing this also sounds like sandro when he's talking about about buildings Mm. he's like you know like why why bother to build a beautiful thing in 10 years and 20 years it's you know it's going to be it's going to be useless. It's going to be forgotten. Uh, it's not going to have its meaning. And, you know, he talked about how, and this is again, 
old versus new. Like people used to build for the ages and now things seem temporary and, you know, um, and transitory and, and, you know, and maybe relationships are the same as buildings in that way. And of course, you know, as it's often the case, that's, that may also be a rationalization on Sandro's part for his own lack of creativity. Mm -hmm. He basically is a, he's a necessary parasite in the business because he he helps Itori with um, you know setting prices and and so that that great scene where you know he knocks over the ink bottle um, because he's evidently jealous of this guy who has the ability to well I mean there's a couple different ways to read that scene he's jealous of the guy or he thinks you know you shouldn't just be copying what's past you should be making something new but in either case he's he's not doing either thing um, and so you have that kind of jealousy of the of the of the failed artist and it's one more one more evidence of the kind of sterility of his of his character well and what i love about so the, you, you just i mean we're jumping ahead but that's one of my favorite scenes is when sandro makes that speech what i love about that and this is part of what the movie doesn't tell you is we don't know that sandro is a failed artist we know he's somebody who traded traded in any artistic ambitions he had for money right he says like um one day they, they they asked me to do an estimate and in a day and a half I made four million lira and there is this sense of like you know like I said like I, I used to dream of you know being a, a genius living in a small rented room and now I own two I own two houses in Milan and Rome and it's and and there is this sort of like like we actually don't we don't know maybe he maybe he was maybe he had the potential to be a great artist but he certainly has sold that for for money and I, I really love that scene because there is this kind of um, definitely this like emptiness in wealth and money. And it reminds me of, um, this is a little, a little, uh, tangential, but it reminds me of one of my favorite scenes from a book that was written a year before this. Um, and it's, uh, it's, uh, Saul Bellows, Henderson, the rain King. And there's mm-hmm. a great scene in that movie where, or in that movie, in that book where, um, the Henderson who is inherited all this wealth from his father and his father had, and, and, and his father had this great library and he, um uh and he remembered as a kid like he used to read the books in the library and he read once uh forgiveness is infinite in the world and then later in life you know this is very literal stuff right but he's like kind of wishing he could have forgiveness from his um from his father his dead father and he keeps going through the library trying to find the book but instead as he's flipping through the books all he can find are what his dad used as bookmarks which were 100 dollar bills so it's like he wants forgiveness and all he can find is money he's traded all of that in all of the stuff that's meaningful in for money and i feel like sandro is sort of expressing that too is like i used to have these things that actually matter that i dreamed about and i traded it all in for money and i got the money but where am i and i i love that idea yeah, and, and and you're right in a sense. I mean, whether whether he truly was an artist or could could have been an artist or could still be an artist, it really doesn't matter in terms of highlighting that particular theme. The idea that there could have been something more meaningful in my life, and instead, it's kind of this empty affluence. I mean, mm-hmm. so whether it's only his perception or whether it's a reality, it has the it has the same effect. Absolutely. So then, so then. Everybody sort of just decides, well, I guess we'll continue our trip. Like, what else are we going to do? We've looked for a couple hours, except um, uh, except that um, Sandro and Claudia decide sort of separately that they're going to keep looking. But this leads to like this turning point mo- uh, in the movie, which everybody who writes about this movie says 
about an hour in when Sandro kisses Claudia, it's like the whole foundations of the movie sort of shake for a second and you're like wait what what is happening and what's interesting is the shot you get after that is the shot from the boat where now you have a lockdown like tripod on the boat so that so the background is so literally the world is sort of shaking at that moment such a brilliant shot that is an amazing shot that's when you're looking at you're like oh my gosh so so this entire island is swaying back and forth it's it's yeah you're right it's absolutely brilliant um, so here we then uh, see uh, Claudius is on this search for Anna and Sandro's on his search for Anna, but we start to realize he's also maybe more so on his search for Claudia at this point. Um, so he finds her at the train station. We have that great shot of the train going away and then Sandro running after it and getting on the train. And then she demands that he, that he leaves. Um, and this <laughs> leads to one of the strangest well, there's two two really interesting scenes that seem to step outside of reality. Yes. Um, so we have the the first Gloria Perkins scene. So Sandro is going to try to find Zuria, this journalist, but we're in this city that seems to be populated only with men, and and they're all like surrounding and cheering and leering at this young woman, which when it happens in the movie, it seems like I don't even understand what this is about. But it but it 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 is this sort of unreal scene. We realize later we're going to get an echoing of that with Claudia. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, what do you have, do you have thoughts on, on sort of this moment in the movie? Well, you're exactly right, Sam. It's, it's, it's almost like if you, oh my gosh, I've been, I've been put into another, into a different world, into it, almost into a different film. Um, there's almost a, there, there is almost kind of a Fellinius, Fellinius mm-hmm. feel to it because it's, it's uh, it's nightmarish and dreamlike at the you know, at the same time. Well, I, I think both this film and um, this scene and the the later one that you're alluding to, which is even more disturbing. Um, that later scene reminds me of Hitchcock's The Birds, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, I, and 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 I I think it says something about maybe this is just a cliche, but it just says something about the predatory nature of the relationship between the sexes, right? It's 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 truly turning the this woman into into an object and in the case of Gloria Perkins that's exactly what she wants in the case of Claudia that makes her obviously feel uncomfortable and threatened and the link between the two is is Sandro and so you know the question becomes is is his relationship with Claudia no different than the relationship of the various men with uh um with Gloria Perkins so to me it's one of those moments where okay, I'll, I'll make a connection to another director that otherwise makes no sense at all. But it's almost like one of those Kubrickian insights into, well, what drives men? Well, mm-hmm. you know, it's all about sex, uh, which is one of Kubrick's, you know, favorite themes. And, 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 and it's also just this power of, it's like this power of the crowd, right? And it's just, uh, and, and you said, you said the fact that they're all men, it's really, it's really kind of terrifying. And on the one hand, you have a woman that, sees this as evidence of her power and on the other hand you have a woman who sees this as evidence of her vulnerability mm-hmm. and i think that i think antonioni is playing with that uh as well what role does sex play in a power dynamic is it an exercise of power uh i have to bring in barbie here with with uh, with, uh, with gloria perkins you know is, is that an exercise of of sexual power or is it a revelation of sexual vulnerability with claudia 
Absolutely. No, I actually thought about Barbie in the second scene where um where it's Claudia because you're sort of watching her be watched and the the in Barbie the when they first come into the real world and and Barbie becomes aware of how people are looking at her. Yeah. I just I, I just thought of that exact thing. So, um so he uses Zuria to set up this uh to get the thing about the um pharmacist into the paper to try to lure Claudia to that spot. Um, but then we cut to Claudia and Claudia has returned to be with the rest of the rich at this point. Right. So they're in there in um, some villa. Um, and uh, here's where we see her literally now trying on some of the trappings of this. We see her putting on rings and jewelry. We see her putting on the wig, which makes her look, you know, mm-hmm. more like, like Anna. And yeah. I, at this point we've watched enough movies where I realize whenever you see one character starting to look like another character, <laughs> like, all right, well that's Hitchcock. That's, um, that's Lynch. That's, um, persona. That's right. right? All of these things are like, um, like this, this is, this is a, a powerful moment, especially when you see one woman becoming another woman. Um, Here's also where we get the uh, the Julietta and uh, who's one of my Julia is one of my favorite characters. I find <laughs> that performance really good and and, and really interesting. Um, and Godfredo, the 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 young painter. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this other moment that sort of shifts the movie when when um, Julietta is starting to like initiate her affair with Godfredo, and she's kind of ushering um, Claudia out of the room, and she says, "You know, what must I do to be left alone?" And Claudia says, "Shut the door," and she shuts the door, and that's sort of this. And then it like cuts to behind to the opposite sh- shot, and we're seeing behind our the the back of Claudia's head, and like that is her final moment of saying, "I am I am leaving this world right now, and I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back and look for Anna." And it's sort of it, it's it's a break with you know with it's the last time she's sort of trying on the things of this this group in this world uh for right and, now and I, and I think it's also a moment this is a, another theme that we that has run through the podcast from time to time sam we've often talked about is there a particular character whose point of view kind of stands in for the audience um and i think this is a moment when julia closes that door and, and claudia kind of runs down the hall which is uh, the first of a couple times when she runs down halls. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- I think she's registering the same shock that we are registering because we had seen Julia, at least I had, as a very different kind of character, right? I saw her as kind of sweet and being picked on by Corrado and, and you know, and, and really good hearted. And it's not that she isn't those things, but it's like a reminder that you can only keep a person down for so long. Uh, and and she reveals the fact that she has agency. But at the same time, for Claudia, seeing Julia kind of join the rest of the Nuva, the rest of the Nuva Rish in this kind of amoral behavior or immoral behavior, she's kind of shocked by it. Uh, scared by it and of course thinks about her own kiss with Sandro earlier and thinks well maybe actually I'm no better I mean I think I'm no better than Julia I think all those are possible thoughts in her mind as she runs away and I think those are the same thoughts that is in our mind as an audience so I think that's one of the ways in which Antonioni does bring us I think closer to her in some respects than, than any of the other characters except maybe Sandro there's one other throwaway line while they're at, I mean, this is there, there's other great, I mean, there's, I just want to tip my hat to one of the great shots of the movie when she goes out on the balcony and like the right half of the screen is outdoors and white in the, in the, oh. the left half. It's like, it's, 
of with a movie of some of the greatest shots I've ever seen. That one is st- stunning in lots and lots of ways. But there's also a throwaway line which it touches back on something Sandra talks about later when somebody asks, I think it's Patricia because I think it's her villa. asks her you know why don't you sell this and turn it into like a an insane asylum or something and it's the second time we've heard about a villa being something else because when they're at the coast guard the one guy says points up to a statue and says yeah that's the guy who designed this imagine if he knew what it would be doing now Mm -hmm. there is this sense of like all this all of this old stuff is getting repurposed for maybe these less vaunted uh purposes you know mm-hmm. and, you know so so like i i noticed that line the second time through because it, it he he's picking up on this idea a little bit so this leads us to the pharmacy where we get sandro and claudia back together again and i'm going through this quickly because because of time because because i want to get to this where they go after the pharmacy is when they go to i think it's noto yeah where yeah. it is this um village that was built under Mussolini and it's this very like blocky modernist architecture and it is completely empty this is the extreme version of what Sandro's talking I mean this is a if this is 1962 or 1960 this is 20 years old and it is completely empty and they say this is not a town this is a cemetery um and you even see and there's a church there you know and 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 you get to my mind the great shot of this movie is down that alley where you see the car and in it's and the camera's actually moving just a little bit and you see the church in the background like honestly i would i would pay a lot of money for a great poster of that shot like that is such a beautiful image that's right that you have to be a photographer like to to imagine mm-hmm. this as the perfect as the perfect image yeah and these churches are always empty um they're they're Relics, relics of the past, which is one more way that Antonioni expresses that kind of um, godless landscape that the characters move through. Yeah, this this church is a cemetery. The next church is a museum. You know, yeah. so like they're all they're all sort of becoming these other things. Um, so then we get into the city. This is where we have the scene of of um, Claudia surrounded by men that we talked about. They go up to the bell tower of the church, um, and this is where Sandro makes the speech we've been talking about about like kind of um, giving up on his uh, giving up on his dreams. And this is also where he kind of the first time that he sort of out and out like proposes to to Claudia. Um, I think right is that's that yeah, is that's that right. up there? That's yeah, right. yeah. Um, so then and then, so then we we move to Claudia. It's the most like youthful and energetic and in love when she's they're listening to the sort of pop music on the radio and she's singing along and she seems to finally have been like i am totally in on this and it's the the moment that she feels that is the time sandro starts to for the first time he seems disinterested in her which of course (laughs) and and, yeah and that's where they have the exchange right first she says you know tell me you love me and i love you i don't love you and she says oh i deserve that so it's 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 like you know, we, we can't we can't even talk explicitly about love. We're we're so we're so alienated, so jejun or whatever that you know. Let's let's not dwell on whether I love you or whether I don't love you. Let's let's not let's not you know make a make a real commitment about that. You know, this is this is one one of the ways again in which Antonioni is kind of showing this mystery to human behavior because Sandro's been pursuing. You know, he's been he's spent an hour pursuing her. They've. They've made love in the grass and, you know, he's proposed to her. And and now he, he seems to be easily, easily be able to say, well, ah, I love you now. Nah, I don't love you. And then, of course, he he proceeds to cheat on her. 
So it's like, again, Antonio is really interested in this kind of, um, this kind of inconstancy of, of human nature, which is of a piece with, oh, well, Anna's gone, I guess we'll just kind of forget about her. So that theme of, you know, the, the, the ancient versus the modern and, and, and the theme of change, in a way, you could say that's what's running through this film as well, is that these people are just, they're variable. It's really hard to know exactly who are they and what are they really committed to. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things that that you know, the Criterion's got a lot of good Antonioni um, stuff uh, around this, and and he talks a lot about sort of how like modern ideas and morals don't fit into ancient vessels is sort of right, I, th- right. I think kind of the idea that you know, and 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 I think the architecture serves as part of that, um, which is why we're trying to cram these other things into these old these old pieces and they they may or may not fit. So they end up going back, uh, eventually not going back. They end up going to the place where. The rest of the uh, yachting party has ended up and we have this sort of final party at the hotel where Claudia decides to stay back um, in the in the hotel room and Sandro goes down. He meets Ettore and it's clear that he is not going to break things off with him. And he's going, you know, like like he has taught he had made this sort of speech about, you know, maybe what I need to do is leave him. And and uh, Claudia reminds him of that before he goes down. And then he has this short conversation with Ettore and it's clear Okay, tomorrow we start work again on giving estimates for things. Um, there's this moment where he sits and watches TV for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't really tell. It's 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 either like weather or war on TV. I can't quite tell from the, the sound effects. And then you can see him sort of like get frustrated and get up. And he has already seen Gloria Perkins twice in the um, uh, at the party. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is then where we we get the 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 morning and. Uh, Claudia wakes up and she's searching for him. And there's the great scene of her running down that hallway, this really long scene, um, which again was like, I stood up when I saw that and thought that's beautiful <laughs> to look at. Uh, and she, she goes through kind of the, the, the wreckage of the party that mm-hmm. also felt very Gatsby like to me of like yes. the morning after. And it's just sort of, everything's kind of torn up and in ruins. And she finds Sandro and he, the way he like, um, kind of hides his face you know yeah. after he sees her i mean he he seems like a little child at that moment um uh and then so then we get to the final scene where he uh where she goes out um up onto this balcony at the hotel and she's crying and she had said earlier i, I can't even cry anymore she says to patricia when she's talking about anna mm-hmm. um and then sandro follows her and by the time sandro get there she's no longer crying and he sits on the bench and is crying and we see the back of his head and she hesitates and then finally puts her hand on the back of his head and kind of rubs his head a little bit and then we get this final shot with mount edna and the hotel um what do you make of this end i mean this ending is open uh but yeah, what do yeah, you exactly. think and, and what do you I, think of this ending not not yeah, what I, does I, it I, mean I, but what do you think it means yeah you know and I, i'm glad you said that because op- open is one way to describe the this film and, and Antonio's approach it's it's open so um if it were a conventional hollywood film you would say oh this is the this is the great moment of reconciliation and obviously they're going to live happily ever after but the tears are so ambiguous, or maybe I should say they're they're multivalent. The tears can mean many things. They could they could be genuine tears of remorse. They could be tears of frustration that um, I just can't change. I mean, look at what I did. I cheated on her. Um, there's there's tears of regret. You know, we have 
we have had this fling together. And in fact, David Boardwell says it's an alternative translation of Laventura is the fling. Well, and, and Sandro and he, even and he uses the, the phrase Laventura. At one point, yeah, this yeah. is your fling. Um, you know, so we've had this fling together, um, and and now I regret it. Or it's just they just they they just recognize the the emptiness of their lives, and they're shedding tears over that. And I think that that's the brilliance of the ending. I think that Antonio leaves you. I mean, those are some possibilities, or there's probably more. And Antonio leaves you with all those possibilities, and. You and that's of course what this film is so much about. You interpret this image, you interpret this moment, you interpret this behavior, um, and I think that's one of the things that excited people about the film. Well, and another word that gets used to describe this is novelistic, and it does have that. It does feel like a novel in a kind of way where the secondary characters are off to the side and they're in the center sometimes, but they feel like they're there. They have these whole other stories of themselves that we don't know, but you can sort of imagine and place onto those things. Yeah. I, I really loved this, especially the second time, um, the, the sort of build up to that moment. And then as you walk away and, and the screen goes black, you're like now left to think with this. So I want to ask a question about the title La Ventura, which means the adventure or the fling. Uh, what do you think the adventure is in this movie? I mean, again, I think this is also open, but I'm curious your thoughts, you know, calling this movie the adventure. Well, I, 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 I think there's, I think the adventure could apply to any, any of a number of different characters who are having various adventures, right? Mm -hmm. we, we talked about the fact that every couple and every couple is somebody being unfaithful to somebody else. I, I, I also think that the adventure sets you up for a kind of, um, I guess misdirection is the best way to think about it, right? Because you think the adventure is going to be the adventure of searching for Anna uh, or the adventure of finding Anna or the adventure of having a satisfying relationship. And all of those ways in which this could be an adventure actually kind of deflate. So I see the adventure as a deliberately ironic title. I like that. That, that contrasts with what the film really isn't about. People want to have adventures, but they really can't. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Anything else? You we're, we're running out of time. Anything else you want to talk about with this movie? No, I think that's it for me on this. <laughs> All right, uh, what do you have for us for next week? Well, uh, we're we're on a four film arc involving vanishings, um, and so I think the obvious film to end this particular arc with is Peter Weir's uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock uh, from 1975. I'm so excited! I remember when we did Weir movies in the past always hearing reference to this and saying, Oh, I got to see that movie. I got to see that movie. So I was sort of hoping that's where we were headed. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, really, yeah. I'm really excited for that. Um, Barrett, thank you so much for, uh, for recommending this movie and having this conversation. I think this is one of the best conversations we've had. This is a, this is a movie that is great and I cannot wait to watch it again because I think, I think I will keep finding things in it and it's, visually so great and narratively so interesting um so it, it deserves its spot in that 30 movies that are the top five movies of all time uh, <laughs> kind of thing so thank you so much for uh for recommending this that is all the time that we have but we'll be back next week to talk about picnic at hanging rock in the video store <laughs> <laughs>